<clears throat> this is the final day of this February 2020 four-day session, and uh, I'm going to finish up reading this book by Ajahn Chah entitled Everything Arises, Everything Falls Away, and it's translated by Paul Breiter. <clears throat> Starting in a chapter entitled Meditation Instructions, and it begins with questions and answers. The student says, I'd like to get calmness. I want to meditate and make my mind peaceful. And Ajahn Chah says, there you are. You want to get something. If you really want this, you have to consider what it is that causes the mind to not be peaceful. The Buddha taught that everything happens due to causes, but we expect the fruit to just fall into our hands. It's like wanting to eat watermelon without ever planting watermelons. So where will it come from? <clears throat> you only get some once in a while, and then you think, oh, it's so sweet, so tasty, and you want more. How can I get more watermelon? Where does it come from? How do people have watermelon to eat? But it doesn't come from merely speculating about it. We have to think it through to get the whole picture. Look at all the activities of the mind. Having been born into this world, why is it that we have suffering, difficulty, and heaviness? We suffer again and again over the same old things because our knowledge is not thorough. It's just amazing. <clears throat> Speaking for myself here, it's just amazing how we keep making the same mistakes again and again and again. There's some value to taking a look. Why is it that I'm so scattered? Why is it that I'm irritable? How are we using our minds? There's someone once said the difference between a man and a horse is <clears throat> horse bumps its head on the barn door once and that's it. Man will bump it again and again and again. <clears throat> Ajahn Chah says, what's the problem? We are living with and creating troubles for ourselves, but we don't understand where the difficulty really lies. Living at home, we feel we have difficulties with our spouses, our children, whatever. We talk about it, but we don't truly understand it, so it really is difficult. Struggling to get the mind to samadhi is the same. We can't figure out why we can't realize samadhi. We need to understand the truth of cause and effect, what causes put us in this condition. Everything arises from causes. But we don't get it. It's like having a bottle full of water, then drinking it all and hoping for more. There's no more water that can come out of the bottle. But if we get water from a stream, then we can keep drinking because the stream keeps providing water. The stream is like seeing impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self deeply. Constant change, suffering, no self. Seeing it deeply, knowing it thoroughly. Ordinary superficial knowledge 
doesn't know thoroughly, but with penetrating insight, we realize the full depth and flavor of these three characteristics. And then whatever arises, we see the truth of it. We're not so thrown, we're not so caught up when things go well or when things go bad. When it ceases, we see the truth of that. The mind is always perceiving reality, and with this view, we have arrived at a place of peace where there is no suffering or difficulty to bear. The problem of grasping onto things and giving them meaning will keep easing up. We see things arise and see them pass away, arising again and ceasing again. Look at this dharma frequently, contemplate it a lot, develop this awareness a lot. The result will be detachment and dispassion. You become dispassionate about absolutely everything. The things that contact the eyes, ears, nose, and tongue, the things that are born in the mind, we will comprehend clearly. We will see that they are all the same, seeing that all these dharmas, these phenomena, are of the nature of impermanent suffering and not self, and are not to be grasped even in the slightest. Detachment is born. This is the key thing can make it so much easier for us is not to grasp in the, in the slightest. It's when there's a little hesitation. Yeah, I know I shouldn't go down this path, but maybe I will go down this path. No, I'm not going to go. Well, someone once said, a thought is like cigarette ash that falls on your sweater. If you brush it away, there's no damage, no problem. But if you let it linger, then it burns. There's so many things. We all know this. You have to be blind not to see this happen again and again in your life. So many things where because of our ambivalence, we get caught up and then we're swept down a path and it just seems too difficult to resist. We stop at the beginning much, much easier. I, uh, my, my, uh, at the end of my drinking career, uh, I had the idea that what I would do was uh, limit myself to one or maybe two beers a day. And uh, my wife, God bless her, uh, we talked to some counselor because I was in a bit of a hot water situation and had to go see them. And uh, she said, you know, I think he can do it. <clears throat> she also told me, I really wish you wouldn't. Um, but anyway, uh, what I came to see is it's so much easier just to take that out of the equation. You know, what's wrong with none? It's frankly easier. There's so many things where not leaving the door open makes it a lot easier on us. So he says, are not to be grasped even in the slightest and then detachment is born. When the eye sees forms or the ear hears sounds, we know them for what they are. When the mind is happy or suffering, when it has reactions of satisfaction or aversion, we know all of these things. If we attach to these things, they stick to us and immediately lead us into becoming. If we release them, they go their way. Let go of sights and they go the way of sights. 
let go of sounds, and they go the way of all sounds. But when we need to, we can make use for them. This letting go allows us to relax into our practice. We have a sense of comfort when we're not continually having our buttons pushed, our triggers activated. We really are, if, if you look deeply, um, we are very, very programmed. So many things that we're off to the races before we even know it. So to have this sort of dispassion, this, this, uh, this attitude of, well, maybe, maybe not. You know, maybe things are this way, maybe they aren't. Not to buy into every condition of the mind that comes rolling down the pike. <clears throat> he says, let things go according to their nature. If we are aware in this way, we will see the fact of impermanence. All phenomena that appear are illusion without exception. They are all deceptive. But when we recognize that they are deceptions, we can truly be at ease. Having mindfulness and clear comprehension, having wisdom, we don't see anything but this fact that phenomena arise and are of this nature. Even when we are not doing anything in particular, whatever we may be thinking, we will recognize our thoughts as being just like that and won't get caught up in them. It's the uh, <clears throat> bumper sticker I always wanted for my car. Why believe what you think? If the mind becomes tranquil, we will think, tranquil, no big deal. Tranquility is not permanent. There are only impermanent phenomena and nothing else. Wherever we sit, Dharma is there and wisdom arises. What can cause us to suffer then? We suffer over things that aren't really obtainable because of thinking things not worth thinking. We have all sorts of desires and want things to be a certain way. Wanting to be anything, such as if you want to be an arahant, a fully enlightened being, is bringing suffering upon yourself. The Buddha taught us to stop wanting to be something because he realized that all this wanting to get something and to be something is suffering. There's a little something here from Martin Buber. He says, Rabbi Zusya of Hanapol used to say, if they ask me in the next world, why were you not Moses? I will know the answer. But if they ask me, why were you not Zuzia? I will have nothing to say. <coughs> why want to be something that you're not? When what you are is in fact what you're looking for. Student says, let's see, no, go skip that. <clears throat> Those students always don't always ask the right questions. And we're going to skip ahead here. 
and it's another chapter entitled Keep At It. He says, little by little, we can work at meditation. We don't have deep knowledge yet. We don't really know what we're doing, but we can progress a little at a time. We may not know that we benefit from it, but we do little by little. When you eat your food, are you full after the first mouthful? You don't feel that way, but you could say you're full, although not very full. Take the second mouthful, and you're a little more full, but still, it's just a little. If you keep on eating a little at a time, you will get there. Think about it. Look ahead, and you will see where you are going. Finally, you will be slowly chewing your last mouthful. Small things accumulate, and hunger is reduced until finally you will be full, maybe to the point where you can't look at any more food. The mouthfuls you have eaten one at a time have filled you. Small things accumulate. The AA saying, slow growth is good growth. It's in contrast to the desire for quick change. You can make a quick change if you take a drug, but it doesn't work out as well. And even in... um, the area of practice, even even if you're not dealing with drugs. There's so much uh, attraction to people in the idea of instant enlightenment. There is a whole thing, I suppose it must still exist, uh, called big mind training, where the, uh, the pitch was that in one session, I can't remember how long it was. It might have been half a day. It was enough that they could charge a good amount of money for it. In one session, you could come to awakening. People were pretty excited about that. I I once uh, met somebody, I think in Madison, at a session. We were talking afterwards. And she had been at another center where they invited this guy in to... uh, to give his big mind training. And uh, at a certain point she said, don't we kind of have an emperor's clothes situation here? (laughs) And uh, she really, (laughs) that was not a popular thing to say. Because people people buy into it, especially if you've plunked down 500 bucks. It better be real. The emperor is wearing really nice clothes. Got his birthday suit. Old folks here will tell you there's fire in dry bamboo. In the past, matches were hard to come by and didn't always work. When people went into the forest, they could just find some dry wood and they knew there was fire in it. Whenever they wanted to cook, they only had to rub two pieces of dry bamboo together to start a fire. They would just keep rubbing them together. At first, the wood was cold. Rubbing for a while, it got hot. Then after some time, there was smoke. But it did take a while to get hot and even more time to make smoke and finally fire. Now we, their children and descendants in these times, don't have much patience. If we try to rub pieces of bamboo to make fire, within two minutes, we're getting restless. We get fed up and put the sticks down. Time to take a break. (laughs) Let me do keen heen and let my mind wander. 
Then when we pick them up again, we find they're cold. We start rubbing once more, but we're starting from the beginning again so they don't get hot very quickly, and again we become impatient. Like this, we could keep at it for an hour or for a whole day and wouldn't see any fire. We rub and stop, rub and stop. Then we start to criticize the old people. Those old timers are crazy. I don't know what they're talking about. They must be lying. I've been rubbing sticks all this time and still there's nothing. This is what happens if our understanding and commitment to practice don't go far enough. There's not enough heat, but we expect to have fire. The old folks have done that, but they know it takes some effort. You have to keep rubbing without taking a break. If you take a break, you, you only get cold sticks. I feel like a broken record when I tell people, and I tell myself, you find the mind filled with, with thoughts, let them go, and come back to the practice. But my experience is when you really do that diligently, things do begin to shift. It's just, it's just we're so impatient and we're so programmed to put down the sticks. So many things that the mind wants to grab onto. It, it helps to really get it down to just this moment. There are times to see the big picture, but there are other times when you just need to stick right to this breath. And if you keep it up, things shift. He says, it's like the students who travel here to study meditation. We knew he was going to get here. They listen to some teaching and they want to get it fast. They want to find the method of meditation that will give them results fastest of all. I tell them, if you want fastest, it won't work. There's such a thing as cause and result. The results will be born of the appropriate causes. It doesn't simply appear in an instant as we desire it to. Fastest. Even the Buddha would be stumped. There's that uh, Zen story about the student who comes to the teacher and uh, he says, well, I really want to come to awakening. Um, I'm very keen. How, how long does it take? How long do you think it'll take me? And the teacher sizes him up and says, 10 years. And the student says, oh, oh, 10 years. But I'm very diligent. I'm very diligent and I'm very motivated. Could you think again? And the teacher says, well, 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the student comes back at him again, says, absolutely I will do my utmost. I must come to awakening. And the teacher says, <clears throat> 30 years. We will progress on the path because of continuous effort, just like someone rubbing pieces of bamboo to get fire. Rubbing without stopping, the heat increases. The more she rubs, the hotter it gets. When smoke appears, fire is near, but at the point when she gets smoke, she doesn't take a break. It's not a game, so she knows she has to keep at it. In that way, she gets fire. <clears throat> it 
This next uh, chapter is entitled High Ideals and Daily Frustrations. A Young Monk with Ajahn Chah. A young monk who had fancied himself an able meditator. I always wonder when I read this if this is the translator himself or somebody we know like Jack Cornfield or anyway, a young monk unidentified who, fan, who had fancied himself an able meditator when he first arrived at Wat Pa Pong, told of meeting Ajahn Chah. He related his experiences with different meditation teachers, feeling that he must be making quite an impression on the master. Ajahn Chah didn't say a word, but instead left his seat, got down on all fours, and started sniffing around like a dog. The young man realized that Ajahn Chah must, might be trying to tell him something. <laughs> he stayed and undertook the training and before long began to feel that he was accomplishing nothing and that life itself was devoid of joy or meaning. Convinced he would never smile again, he went to see Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Chah told him, you're like a baby squirrel. It sees the adults climbing trees and jumping from branch to branch, and it wants to do that. So it crawls out on a limb and loses its balance, and bam, it hits the ground. The mother picks it up and brings it back to the tree, but it still wants to run and jump. Off it goes again, and bam, it falls again. Ajahn Chah continued the tale with the poor little squirrel hitting the ground over and over until the monk who thought he would never smile again was literally rolling on the floor of his hut in laughter. Later, he was again becoming disheartened over his inability to live up to the high ideals he held about monastic life and meditation, despite all his efforts to follow the rules and practice hard. He went to see Ajahn Chah to express his frustration. Ajahn Chah told him a story. There was once a donkey who used to listen to the crickets sing. The donkey thought, how wonderful to be able to sing like that. He asked the other animals what the cricket's secret was, and they told him that the crickets drink dew. So every morning he went around licking the dew on the grass, and finally one day he opened his mouth to sing. But he still brayed like a donkey. That's the end of the story. And here we are, the final chapter. This is some final advice. He says, When the mind is untrained, we tend to believe only in our own likes and dislikes. What we like is good, and what we dislike is bad. We may even decide that harmful things are good, and it's true, but only for our own unreliable, changeable minds. It has nothing to do with dharma, and it is not true in the light of reality. So it's taught that we should yank the mind toward the Dharma to enter the Dharma. Don't try to yank the Dharma toward the mind. Just as in the customs of society, a lesser, ordinary person will go to seek out an important person, the important person doesn't need to go see the ordinary person. If we want to accomplish the Buddha's way, we should be willing to seek out the Buddha and his teaching and submit to them. We don't expect the Buddha to come and submit to his students. This is a time-honored way. Time-honored, but it's difficult for many of us to take it to heart and try not to modify it uh, 
It's the uh, old saying in uh, AA, we thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. We always want to find a way to leave the door open, have one foot out the door. He says, just because you like something, will you decide that it is good and right? It is good only because of your habits. That's the confused view of an untrained mind. So before the mind is well trained, we have to push it toward the Dharma and gradually make it accord with Dharma. Eventually, the mind is Dharma and Dharma is the mind. Then all activities are Dharma. Thinking is Dharma. Everything we do is Dharma. It is the truth. Once a tortoise and a snake lived in a forest. The forest was on fire and they were trying to flee. The tortoise was lumbering along and then it saw the snake slither by. It felt pity for that snake. Why? The snake had no legs. So the tortoise figured it wouldn't be able to escape the fire. It wanted to help the snake. But as the fire kept spreading, the snake fled easily while the tortoise couldn't make it, even with its four legs, and it died there. That was the tortoise's ignorance. It thought if you have legs, you can move. If you don't have legs, you can't go anywhere. So it was worried about the snake. It thought the snake would die because it didn't have legs. But the snake was cool about it. It wasn't worried because it could easily escape the danger. thinking that when he said cool, he's thinking of dispassion. This is one way to talk to people with confused ideas. They will feel pity for you and consider you ignorant if you aren't like them and don't have their views and their knowledge. But who is really ignorant? People may look at you and feel that your way of life, your interest in Dharma makes no sense. Others may say that if you want to practice Dharma, you ought to ordain Ordaining or not ordaining isn't the crucial point. It's how you practice. You have to ask, why care what other people think? There's a famous physicist, Richard Feynman, who wrote a book. Say, well, I, can't, I think the title was, Why Do You Care What Other People Think? Um, it's a real good question. So much of what people do is just uh, driven by their fear of the judgment of other people. And then when it's the teacher, it's even more compelling, paralyzing. But really, why do you care? It's it's your life. You're in charge of it. You're You're living it. You're making the choices. People feel their lawn has to be immaculate because the neighbors will be upset. It's okay to mow your yard, but (laughs) I see many times it goes too far, at least in my neighborhood. Lay people live in the realm of sensuality. They have families, money, and possessions and are deeply involved in all sorts of activities. Yet sometimes they will gain insight and see dharma before monks and nuns do. Why is this? It's just because of their suffering from all these things. They see the fault and can let go. They can put it down after seeing clearly in their experience. Seeing the harm and letting go, they are able to make good use of their positions in the world and benefit others. 
learning to let go. It's really what we're doing. We ordained people, on the other hand, might sit here daydreaming about lay life, thinking how great it could be. Oh, yeah, I'd work in my fields and make money, and then I could have a nice family and a comfortable home. We don't know what it's really like. The lay people are out there doing it, breaking their backs in the fields, struggling to earn some money and survive. But for us, it's only fantasy. The lay people live in a certain kind of thoroughness and clarity. Whatever they do, they really do it. You can tell he's talking to monks here. Even getting drunk, they do it thoroughly. (laughs) And they have the experience of what it actually is. Well, we can only imagine what it's like (laughs) in our dreams. So because of their experience, they may become tired of things and realize the Dharma quicker than monks can. One should be one's own witness. Don't take others as your witness. It means learning to trust yourself. People may think you're crazy, but never mind. It only means they don't know anything about Dharma. But if you lack confidence and instead rely on the opinions of unenlightened people, you can be easily deterred. In Thailand these days, it's hard for young people to sustain an interest in Dharma. Maybe they come to the monastery a few times and then their friends start teasing them. Hey, Dhamma Dhamma. They start changing their ways, no longer seeing value in seeking fun, and their friends complain. Since you started going to the monastery, you don't want to hang out or go drinking anymore. What's wrong with you? So they often give up the path. Of course, sometimes when people first start practice, they are too serious and uh, rigid. There are... There are two extremes. It's good to find the middle path. He says, Others' words can't measure your practice, and you don't realize the Dharma because of what others say. I mean the real Dharma. The teaching others can give you are to show you the path, but that isn't real knowledge. When people genuinely meet the Dharma, they realize it directly within themselves. So the Buddha said that he is merely the one who shows the way. In teaching us, he is not accomplishing the way for us. It's not so easy as that. It's like someone who sells us a plow to till the fields. He isn't going to do the plowing for us. We have to do that ourselves. Don't wait for the salesman to do it. Once he's made the sale, he takes the money and splits. That's his part. That's how it is in practice. The Buddha shows the way. He's not the one who does it for us. Don't expect the salesman to till your field. If we understand the path in this way, it's a little more comfortable for us and we will do it ourselves. Then there will be fruition. Teachings can be most profound, but those who listen may not understand. But never mind. Don't be perplexed over profundity or lack of it. Just do the practice wholeheartedly and you can arrive at real understanding. It will bring you to the place the teachings talk about. Aim for the moon, not for the finger pointing to the moon. Since don't rely on the perceptions of ordinary people. Have you read the story about the blind man, men and the elephant? It's a good illustration. Suppose there's an elephant and a group of blind people are trying to describe it. One touches a leg and says it's like a pillar. Another touches the ear says it's like a fan. 
Another, the tail, says, no, it's not a fan, it's like a broom. Another touches the body and says it's something else again from what the others say. There's no resolution. Each blind person touches part of the elephant and has a completely different idea of what it is. But it's the same one elephant. It's like this in practice. With a little understanding or experience, you get limited ideas. You can go from one teacher to the next, seeking explanations and instructions, trying to figure out if they are teaching correctly or incorrectly and how their teachings compare to each other. Some people are always traveling around to learn from different teachers. They try to judge and measure. So when they sit down to meditate, they are constantly in confusion about what is right and what is wrong. This teacher said this, but that teacher said that. One guy teaches in this way, but the other guy's method is different. They don't seem to agree, and it leads to a lot of doubt. You might hear that certain teachers are really good, and so you go receive teachings from Thai Ajans, Zen masters, Vipassana teachers, and others. It seems to me that most of you have probably had enough teaching, but the tendency is always to want to hear more, to compare, and to end up in doubt as a result. Each successive teacher might well increase your confusion further. Thus the Buddha said, I am enlightened through my own efforts without any teacher. A wandering ascetic asked him, Who is your teacher? The Buddha answered, I have no teacher. I attained enlightenment by myself. But that wanderer just shook his head and went away. He thought the Buddha was making up a story and had no interest in what he said. He believed it wasn't possible to achieve anything without a teacher and guide. You study with a spiritual teacher and she tells you to give up greed and anger. She tells you they are harmful and that you need to get rid of them. Then you may practice and do that. But getting rid, rid of greed and anger doesn't come about just because she taught you. You actually have to practice and accomplish that. Through practice, you come to realize something for yourself. You see greed in your mind and give it up. You see anger in your mind and give it up. The teacher doesn't get rid of them for you. She tells you about getting rid of them, but it doesn't happen just because she tells you. You do the practice and come to realization. You understand these things for yourself. <clears throat> this business about giving up anger. Uh, go back to uh, AA again. I remember um, one of the steps when we were, man, well, I don't know if it's a step or not. Anyway, when we were angry, we promptly admitted it. And uh, that really sounded great to me. And then uh, at some point early in my sobriety, uh, I got into a dispute with my wife. And I was so angry, but that little teaching popped into my mind. And I couldn't do a thing about it. I was so angry. It was just like, yeah, someday I'll do that. But, not <laughs> but it was that just the fact that I made that minuscule little effort was helpful because later on it was easier to forget about having to represent righteous justice and <clears throat> prove that I was right. Um, but really, you do it yourself no matter what you're told. And, and from, you know, the, the vantage point of someone who's giving advice, it 
it's so rare that it really uh, gets immediately put into practice. It takes people time. They have to find their own way. They, they are their own teacher in a real, real way. It's like he said earlier, the Buddha shows us the path, but then we have to walk it. Oh, here he says it right here. It's like the Buddha is catching hold of you and bringing you to the beginning of the path, and he tells you, here is the path. Walk on it. He doesn't help you walk. You do that yourself. When you do travel the path and practice dharma, you meet the real dharma, which is beyond anything that anyone can explain to you. So one is enlightened by oneself, understanding past, future, and present, understanding cause and result. Then doubt is finished. Of course, the teacher not only shows you the beginning of the path, the teacher can help as you walk the path. Um, Roshi said that the word sensei literally means walks ahead. walk ahead and say, watch out for this rock. Here, this this stone is slippery. But most of it we find out by slipping and walking into trees. Skipping a little bit. In this realm of impermanence, there will be times when we cannot find spiritual teachers to point out the path to us. Then after some time, such teachers on occasion appear. This isn't something we can always count on. And when there is no spiritual guidance for people, we become thickly obscured by craving and society in general is ruled by desire, anger, and delusion. So at the present time, though the Buddhist religion may be struggling to survive, though in general the way it's practiced is far from the truth of what it really is, we should make the most of the opportunity we do have. When the Buddha passed into final nirvana, the different types of disciples had different feelings. There were those who had awakened to the Dharma, and when they saw the Buddha enter nirvana, they were happy. The Lord Buddha is well gone. He has gone to peace. But those whose defilements were not yet finished thought, the Buddha has died. Who will teach us now? The one we bowed down before is gone. So they wailed and shed tears. That's really bad, crying over the Buddha like a bunch of bums. (laughs) Thinking like fools, they feared no one would teach them anymore. But those who were awakened understood that the Buddha is just this Dharma that he has taught us. Though he passes away, his teachings are still here. So their spirits were still strong, and they did not lack for means of practice because they understood that the Buddha does not die. We can easily see that except for the Dharma, there is nothing that will relieve the trouble and distress in the world and cool the fires of being's torment. Ordinary people of the world are struggling, fighting, suffering, and dying in their lives of ignorance without any end in sight because they are not following a true spiritual path. So let's make efforts to devote our minds and bodies to discovering virtue and spirituality to becoming real human beings who live according to the dharma of humans. We don't have to look at others and be critical of their lack of virtue. Even when those close to us can't practice, we should do what we can first. Before we worry about the deficiencies of others, those of us who understand and can practice should do that straight away.
no better way to benefit other people than actually to turn ourselves seriously to our to practice. <clears throat> Which means, among other things, not judging. Not looking down on other people and not criticizing other practices. The Dharma is not just what is practiced in Buddhism. There is Buddha Dharma in Christianity and in Islam, Hinduism. But outside of the Dharma, there isn't anything that will bring peace and happiness to this world. Outside of Dharma, there is only the struggle of winning and losing, envy and ill will. One who enters the Dharma lets go of these things and spreads loving kindness and compassion instead. Even a little bit of such Dharma is of great benefit. Whenever an individual has such qualities in the heart, the Buddha's way is flourishing. And that's the end. <laughs> and we lived happily ever after. <clears throat> it's just it's so great to do Sashin and to bump up against our tendencies, our limitations. It's a saying that... Uh, in Buddha, being a Buddhist is to be happy to see our hindrances arise. We have this chance to work things out. Some people, things are tough, it's a struggle. For others, things deepen easily. But we're real always, we're really all in the same boat trying to work things out, working out our salvation with diligence. <clears throat> One of the key points of Sashin is to stay in the moment. And that's a little bit of a challenge as we get to the end of Sashin. A lot of people, um, inevitably, thoughts of the end come into our minds. Um, can't necessarily stop them from coming in, but brush them off the sweater. Don't go there. Just continue to practice right to the end. That's the way to finish. <clears throat> we'll stop now and recite the four vows. <clears throat> 